0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free. Right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Every so often here on this show, as you may know, we rerun a favorite episode that Stuck out for us for one reason or another. Today, we're revisiting my interview with a remarkable person who everybody should know about. Her insights on work are as relevant today as uh, when this interview first uh, was posted here on this feed. My guest is Alicia Menendez, who is extraordinarily poised, seemingly confident, undeniably successful. She's a TV news anchor currently on MSNBC. Before that, she was on Vice, ABC News, Fusion, Bustle, and PBS She's a mother of two with a Harvard degree. She's the creator and host of the Latina to Latina podcast. She was named Broadcast Journalism's New Gladiator by Elle magazine, Ms. Millennial by the Washington Post, and a content queen by Marie Claire. And her dad is a U.S. senator. So on the surface, at least, she's got her stuff together. And yet, as you're going to hear, she has struggled for a long time with a specific kind of insecurity at work. She was weighed down by overthinking and excess focus on what other people think of her. When I first conducted this interview, uh, Alicia had just written a book called The Likeability Trap, which is all about, and I'm going to quote her exactly here, it's all about this dynamic in the workplace where women are constantly doing this dance of being told they're too much or not enough and they need to modulate. She calls it the Goldilocks conundrum, where either you're too cold or you're too hot and it's never just right. Quick note here, if you're a dude and you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, well, there's not going to be anything here for me, let me just say that if you're married to a woman or if you have a daughter or a mother who's in the workplace and you want to play a useful role, this is an interview you should hear. And if you find that the psychology that Alicia is describing describes how you are in the world, she's got lots of interesting strategies that she has employed personally, and you're going to hear all about them in this discussion. In the conversation, we talk about the aforementioned likability trap, which is actually a series of likability traps, as you'll hear her explain. We talk about the structural imbalance in feedback for women and men in the workplace, which got me thinking about the massive difference in the kind of feedback I used to get when I was a male news anchor as opposed to uh, my female colleagues. And we talk about things for men to consider as they engage with women in the workplace. There's a lot here. And she is, as you're about to hear, just a a really sharp mind and a great storyteller. Just a quick reminder, we recorded this back in 2019, pre-pandemic. So you're going to hear me reference my work on Good Morning America, where I no longer work. But first, some uh, BSP, blatant self-promotion. Just to say real quick, don't forget to check out danharris.com, my new website where you can sign up. For my newsletter, which I haven't been promoting that hard because we've been uh, honing it in the background, but um, now I really feel good about it, and uh, it's a place where I sum up the key learnings for me from the week's episodes and also make a bunch of cultural recommendations, whatever books and TV shows and movies I'm enjoying right now. Go check it out, danharris.com. We also have a new merch store where you can buy 10% happier gear and also uh, some gear festooned with my profanity-laced slogans, danharris.com. Meanwhile, over on the 10% Happier app from Monday, May 13th to Sunday, May 19th, we're going to be celebrating World Meditation Week with a whole series of free meditations available right there on the app every day, something new and unique designed to help beginners and seasoned meditators. And because we're so excited about it, we're going to be offering 40% off the subscription price until the end of May. Head over to 10percent.com slash 40. That's 10percent spelled out dot com slash 40 to get started. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel slash happier Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Dan Harris. Good to see you. Tell me your personal story of why you got so interested in this issue of likability.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I am a very sensitive person, so I am probably just very naturally predisposed to caring about other people, how I make other people feel. Some of that's probably because I am a Cancer, an INFJ. Um, like I'm very I-N-F-J. yeah, introverted, intuitive, feeler, judge. It's one of those Myers-Briggs things. Okay. But but if you say it to someone who does that type of organizational psychology, they're like, oh, oh. So when you
0: say cancer, you yeah. s- say I mean, you really I mean, believe in astro- the horoscope?
1: <laughs> what I mean is that when I was young and reading the back of Seventeen magazine <laughs> and they would tell me my astrological sign, it always sort of added up. Hard on the outside, soft on the inside. Um, and then... I am a woman who grew up in America and across cultures and certainly in our culture, we socialize girls who become women into caring about others' feelings and what others think of them. And I think there's value in that, right? Like, I think it is good for us to be aware of others, the challenges when that becomes a hyper focus that dominates the choices you make in your life. If you add then on top of all of that, I'm a public person. And I think more and more of us are public people these days, meaning you if you have a Twitter account and an Instagram account that's public-facing, then you're a public person. And so I was getting not just the feedback that you'd get as a worker in an office, but also all the feedback you get as a person who appears on people's televisions and smartphones about what I wore, what I looked like, what I was saying, um, and how other people felt about that. And I felt a need for myself to put that all in context and in order. I originally imagined The Likeability Trap to be one of these like eat, pray, love books where I would go on some incredible life journey and come back not caring about whether or not other people liked me, which was sounds way more fun than the book that I actually wrote. <laughs> uh, because once I started talking, I sort of imagined as a care that all women care. And then I would meet women and interview them and they'd be like, oh, I don't give a damn. But even those women felt that they paid a price for being so brazenly themselves. Uh-huh. And what I came to realize is that if you live in a society where women are supposed to care, if you go into a workplace where women are supposed to care and you don't meet those expectations, then you still pay a price. And that's when my focus shifted to the workplace. So
0: you you saw that even if you were able to magically convince yourself not to care, it wouldn't fix everything because people, you'd be punished for not caring.
1: Correct. So. At work, I mean, at this point it feels like we sort of know this. Strong women, women who are assertive, who are comfortable with confrontation are constantly given this feedback that they need to tone it down, smile a little bit more, talk about things in the context of the team. I'm mirroring it to you as I do it. And then that women who are very warm, communal, who sort of meet all these expectations of what we have of women are told that they need to dial up their strength, sit a certain way in a meeting uh, so that they're taken more seriously and thought of as leadership material. And so women are constantly Doing this dance of being told they're too much or not enough and they need to modulate. Women like myself have confusingly been given both sets of feedback, which tells you how subjective and context specific that feedback is. And so, you know, a woman who's like, screw it, I'm just going to do me, often then runs into, you know, penalties in the office for being like, no, I'm not going to fix the printer, you fix it. You know, like those, those things add up over time. And then the other problem, which you will totally get is not caring is an active process. We talk about not caring as though it's just like, just sit down, make a choice for yourself, like this Instagram meme about doing you, and then you'll (laughs) be fixed. And you can't, be someone like me who for 36 years has cared what other people think about you and then make a one-time choice to not care and suddenly be alleviated of this problem.
0: So I want to hear more about how this played out for you. Yeah, totally. It's so interesting because I mean, I don't know you well, I've met you a few times, but sit watching from distance.
1: You're surprised that I care this much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not,
0: not that you come off as somebody who's doesn't care but you just seem like you just got it together so you to me you seem like a star and so uh, not that caring makes you not a star but you you project an intelligence and a confidence and a put togetherness that i wouldn't have guessed it makes me like you even more now that i know uh, that what's going on beneath the surface but it's so interesting
1: well, first of all, thank you for that because I think that is part of the irony. So I'm glad that my performance of uh, self-confidence has <laughs> has landed so well. Um, but that is part of what we learned. So for me, I think part of it is I grew up in Union City, New Jersey. It where is where my dad
0: grew up, by the way. Yeah.
1: The best people are from <laughs> Union City. And um, you know, it's a it's a working class community. I I grew up upper middle class. My dad is an elected official, my mom's a public school teacher. At It's not a tough town, but there are elements of it that are gritty, you know, because people are doing what they need to do in order to survive. Super sensitive kid was taught sort of very early, like you need to deal with the sensitivity. Like you can't be crying every day in class. Like you're going to get your butt kicked in some capacity. And so toughness for me is in some ways something that I have learned um, or at least learned the performance of toughness. And I think for lots of women, it's a performance that we learn when we go to work, that all of a sudden you need to be able to operate in a space where leadership has been defined by what we perceive as very masculine qualities um, and that you can't ever say I'm overwhelmed or I'm not sure because those then become their own vulnerabilities. So for me, I think, yeah, part of what I've always liked being on air is that it means you've got to be on for what 45 minutes a day and then you can go be the self you are a lot of the other time right where it's like I'm um, it sort of a mess and I'm like wearing stretch pants and I didn't do my hair and I and, you know and there's a there's a tidiness to being on air where it's like that light goes on and you're on and then it goes off and you can you can be off like if you're sort of a quiet introverted person you can go back to being a quiet, introverted person for a part of the day. Um, I once did a management assessment that I thought was really helpful too, where they would, they had you answer all these questions, and you're like, I have no idea what these questions are adding up to. Have you ever taken one of these, like a multiple choice? No. And, and, And then, you know, this person comes back to you with an assessment, and it shows you sort of a dot of how you naturally are And a dot of how you self-present in the office and then an arrow. And it shows you how much you're self-correcting from the way that you are naturally to the way that your office environment asks you to be. And so the person doing my analysis was like, so you're a very introverted person who is Overcompensating to be very extroverted in the environment that you're in. And I was like, Yes, like that is exactly right. And he's like, You're really tired at the end of the day, aren't you? And I was like, Oh my God, yes, I'm so tired every day. And I thought that was just because, you know, my life's busy and there's a lot of work. And he was like, No, he's like, This is a big part of it is that you correct. And he's like, You're probably not wrong that you need to make that correction, but that correction does come at a price. The other thing he said that I found really illustrative to your point about seeming one way and feeling another is that he's like, you're very comfortable confronting people in power and you're very comfortable confronting people on behalf of the group. You have a lot more trouble with confrontation that is lateral to you or even with people that you manage. Mm. And so I think that is some of it is that the like self presentation is, is one where, um, it's imagining that, that dynamic with someone who who has power questioning those in power in an actual office environment you know i'm not as good at saying like i needed that 10 minutes ago
0: uh to somebody who works for mm-hmm. you are there signal moments that stand out in your life where this desire to be liked really messed you up jammed you up
1: yeah and i mean i wonder if if you relate to this at all but the, the interesting thing about the work that we do is that you both are in an office all day, right? Like, I know all of the sort of office mechanics and politics that most people who are consultants or, you know, work in healthcare deal with. And then for us, because there is an on air component and because there is a public image component, so much of the feedback that I've received is about, aesthetics and self-presentation. Like I remember when I was still trying to break into media and make that move from being sort of an on-air contributor to being someone who worked full-time as a journalist.
0: So this is back in your Huffington Post days?
1: Even before that, like when I was, I was doing a lot of cable spots and I would meet with people, with executives. Cable
0: spots, meaning you were in a segment as a contributor, not as the anchor or host.
1: Correct. Thank you for breaking that down, um, that I would have, I'd go into one meeting and someone would be like, you really need to cut your hair. Like your hair belies how young you are. You need to cut your hair. So I'd go home and I'd cut my hair and then I'd go into another meeting and someone would be like, why did you cut your hair? Like your, your long hair was my favorite thing about you. And in my desire to people please and to be well liked, I would basically take any piece of advice that was given to me not fully appreciative of how subjective that advice was and I'd go and I'd implement it and now that's that's somewhat unique to being on air in the sense that people can talk to us about our appearance and such in a way that you know it would be an HR violation in a in a different office or a different line of work but women deal with this all the time at work, right? Where the majority of the feedback that women are given is critical subjective feedback, meaning that it is most likely your boss's opinion of your style. And that can be other women who are your boss, it can be men who are your boss, but women are so often talked to about their voice. Is it too high? Is it too low? The way they sit in a chair, the way that they ask for things, the way that they manage their team, um, the way that they use their hands. Like I interviewed Alexandra Wilkes Wilson, who's this mega entrepreneur. She she launched Guilt, She launched Glam Squad. She's now at Allergan. And very early in her career, she had one of these communication coaches who was like, well, you talk too much with your hands. And if you insist on talking with your hands, then you need to talk with your hands in a more masculine way, like counting down your points. <laughs> It's like, okay, like maybe that is helpful theoretically in terms of making her a better and more persuasive communicator. I think the challenge for women is that it represents so much of the feedback that we get that it takes up a lot of the room of actually talking about concrete skills that might make you better at your work.
0: Another thing I've read about feedback for women in the workplace is that when their managers are men, often the men are too afraid to give them frank feedback, and their careers suffer because they don't know what to fix.
1: Yes, thank you so much for bringing this up because that was one of the more surprising Mm -hmm. things that I read as well um, in in writing The Likeability Trap, which is there's sort of this expectation. What they believe it is is that women won't be able to handle it, like that we're not strong enough to receive critical feedback, and so people withhold it. But that's problematic too because Mm -hmm. if you want to get better at the work you do. You need to understand what you're not doing correctly. So sometimes managers will withhold it. Sometimes they will upwardly distort. So they'll actually give you a better sense of how you're doing than how you're actually doing. Mm. And then they're also like, I've had the So that you walk out there thinking
0: you're doing great, great. and then then all of a sudden your, your career is, you know, stifled because you're not working on the stuff that nobody's telling you you need to work
1: on. Correct. And... You know, I, I once I've gotten one review, I think, in my entire career, which is the other thing that like we often talk about this in terms of systems and structures, when a lot of us are working outside of those traditional systems and structures, like, you know, you don't have six month reviews in lots of industries. The one review I got was glowing. So I'd like to go on record saying it was glowing, though now I'm, you know, perhaps my bosses were upwardly distorting. It didn't occur to me to ask how I could do better. Right. That it's like that's part of the process, too, and part of what we have to learn, which is if you're in one of these feedback sessions and you don't feel like you're getting the type of concrete feedback you need in order to do even better than you're doing, ask for it and really push your manager to help find you ways that you can concretely do better than you are right now.
0: Thank you for clarifying that um, and expanding on that. Uh, And I'm glad that what my recall of what I read is correct (laughs) because my recall is increasingly in question. I just wanted to say, you know, we were talking about this a little bit, or I was thinking about this a little bit when we were talking before we started mm-hmm. recording, that yes, public figures get a lot of feedback that quote-unquote normal people people don't get. But in my experience, this is an N of one mm-hmm. here, just in my experience, observing the way the feedback happens, I get much different kinds of feedback than my female What do you colleagues. get? Mostly what I get is... uh Stuff related to meditation, actually. I mean, even though I I think more people would know me as an ABC News anchor since I've been doing this for 20 years, but most of what I hear on Twitter is meditation stuff. Hey, I liked your book or, you know, hey, you should put this in the app or whatever. Uh, Or or, that was a funny comment on Good Morning America this morning or, you know, and and occasionally somebody will say, hey, I thought that comment was a little too snide vis-a-vis one of your co-anchors or (laughs) – I, did, I don't like your poli- – you were, you were talking about politics, and you revealed that either you're a liberal or a conservative. I get both of, course, of those. yes. The women that I work with, it's very much about their hair, makeup, and clothing. And I never get feedback on that. In fact, I read once about or heard once about an Australian, I think, news anchor who wore the same suit every day for a year, and nobody commented on it. And, I mean, nobody – I mean, when I go on Good Morning America, I – on the weekends, I wear – on that's kind of like a sartorial mullet. I wear uh, <laughs> <clears throat> my my jacket, and I have three jackets in my office that I just rotate among. Even though I have a bunch of other suits at home that I'm too lazy to bring in, mm-hmm. I put on a shirt and a tie, and I keep sweatpants on on the bottom. Uh, so it's like business on top, party on bottom. And but the women I work with, like they constantly have to rotate their clothing. They're getting comments about it from management from people in the audience mean comments about how they look that management isn't making mean comments but the people on Twitter are making really cruel comments or or totally pornographic comments I never get any of that and
1: are you, are it, you at all are you at all jealous
0: no <laughs> it's, the structural imbalance is very striking
1: right I mean there's so much that we can unpack there in terms of the way that we imagine women's um zeke to be open for consumption and then for critique what i hear from that is then you don't really end up wasting a ton of energy contending with that feedback
0: no i do have an inner voice that is pretty hard yes yes but it's not bolstered even on days where i feel like i look terrible or whatever i nobody on twitter is agreeing with me
1: right and i think that is That is the big differential, which is so you and I both have this inner critic, inner voice. And then imagine you have a horde of people on any platform confirming that you should be insecure about the things that you're likely already insecure about because you're human and telling you that there are new things you should be insecure about. Like I once had someone who left me just a series of voicemails about how I had the largest mouth they'd ever seen. Now i didn't, I'd never thought of myself as being a person who had a particularly large mouth, but they I mean they would go into detail about how I should really think about how large my mouth was and another person who was always very upset about the amount of lip gloss I had on it was like, "Well, I'd love to respond to what you're saying, but I couldn't hear it through all the w d forty on your lips so oh. people get creative in the way that they describe to you the, and that's and that's the problem, which is you lose time, you lose energy. It's not just that it's happening. It's that it can be really draining, really disorienting. And that's like at a soulful level. When you talk about work, it's also just it's time away, right? Like there's a There's a finite amount of time you have to get done, the things you have to get done. And any of that time that's taken up by talking about how you look or how you sound, provided you're not a recording artist or a model, is time away from the actual work that you do.
0: Unpack for me for a second the title of the book, The Likability Trap. What does that mean?
1: Um, it means that I couldn't find a good enough synonym for trap because I tried. It was almost the likability paradox, the likability we went through What's a thousand rounds. Um, that there's more than one is is mm. part of it. Um, is that there is this trap one, which I have, you know, I think I've laid out, which is the sort of Too warm, too cold, never just right. What I call the Goldilocks conundrum. Um, And I think we're pretty familiar with that one. Trap two is that you're both being told, if you're a woman in the workplace, that you need to do this whole dial it up or dial it down thing. But then we're also being told that one of the keys to leadership and one of the keys to being likable is being your authentic self. So you're doing this gender-correcting performance at the same time that authenticity is being demanded. I look at the book through—I look at the traps through the lens of women, but I think there are a lot of people who contend with this period. I think you especially contend with it if you are a racial or ethnic minority in your office, if you're disabled, if you are LGBTQ. I mean, any that you do not align with the dominant office culture and you're being told to be authentic— It can be really confusing because you're also probably getting subtle cues that you need to do some type of performance.
0: Right. Don't be too authentic. Don't be too authentic. It's like that scene from Knocked Up when um, the boss at the entertainment network, that movie Knocked Up, what was it? Katherine Heigl is the star Uh and she's on E or something like that and her bosses are telling her – you don't need to lose weight just, just tighten. tighten up
1: just t- just get on the scale see what the number is get off when you get back on make sure it's lower yes it's a it's a favorite of mine um but so that's trap 2 which and I think that we we live in this moment where authenticity is such a buzzword it's almost lost all meaning right like is it to be fully authentic when most of us have a challenge really delving deep into who that authentic self is, because at some point we've been asked to perform in some way that is inauthentic. Um, And then people are performing authenticity on a lot of these platforms, right? Like it's one of the, I think the, the term for it on Instagram is vulnerability porn, where it's like, here's just like a gorgeous photo of myself talking about a really hard thing I went through. And sometimes it is truly vulnerable and it is truly authentic, but it also then becomes layered with this weird, like, it's the third week of the month and it's time for me to reveal something about myself so that I can feel really connected to my audience. And there becomes now a performance of vulnerability and a performance of authenticity. And then trap three, you know, when, when Sheryl Sandberg gave her Ted talk, um, that formed the basis of lean in and then wrote lean in the success likability penalty for women came into focus, right? She, it became a thing that women were talking about a lot, that the more successful you become as a woman, the less others like you, just because. It's so rare to see women succeed that you see a woman who's successful and you think, wow, she must have been willing to do anything to get there. There must be something wrong with her. That is complicated. It's even more more complicated because it's every little thing you need to do on the path to success where likability comes into play. So high achieving women, there's a likability penalty in hiring because there's it's presumed that if you're super duper competent, you must not be very fun to work with. There's a likability penalty when you ask for a raise or a promotion because you're advocating for yourself and that violates the expectation that women are supposed to advocate for all. Um, and, and so it's like every little step you're going through this. And then on top of it, there's this existential feeling, which is a woman like myself. So I'm, I'm born 83. I'm raised in the afterglow of the feminist revolution. I was taught that I could pursue ambition and success and want that brazenly. And it turns out this thing that I wanted and have strived for runs counter to this other thing that I've been told that I should want and strive for, which is likability, such that it's not just like a a strategic deployment of how I do all of these things to get to a certain point. It's that there is an internal conflict and battle over these two things I should want um, that I'm being told in actuality are mutually exclusive.
0: Feels like trap is the perfect word because Thank
1: you. I needed the affirmation. See, I was begging for it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, man, that's deep, actually. <laughs> um, but, but you, it, it, there are so many ways to lose here. You know, you are wired to want the affirmation, and yet the wanting of it slows you down in your job. And yet if you dial down on the wanting of it, you can pay penalties for not pleasing people. And then if you follow society's um, exhortations that women can have it all and girl power, et cetera, et cetera, and you, you actually become successful, you pay a price for that because people resent you or question you or, or are suspicious of you. And the mere wanting of it can provoke the same suspicions. So it's like every which way you turn, there are problems. Am I getting that right?
1: You, I'm – shocked and stunned by how well you were able to articulate that because it took me two years of writing the book to articulate it like it is it's complicated and it's messy and it's why I get how appealing it is to be like well just don't care like that seems like such an elegant answer to what is such a complicated problem and unfortunately it's just not that simple it's it's why it feels so good to be like well I'm just not gonna care because the, to actually solve this requires a much more comprehensive organizational structural approach.
0: Oh, well, let's talk about that. So, where did you land? You didn't end up going to uh, Bali and Rome and and eating and praying I did and it's loving. So yeah, I did so. It's so <laughs> wrong. Yes. It's
1: so wrong. Yeah. I mean, where I landed is that this, I think, is the conversation. The conversation about likability is is sort of a cousin conversation to the conversation that a lot of organizational leaders are are having around bias and unconscious bias, which is that likability, I think, becomes this very colloquial way of um, papering over the fact that we're not all alike and that is challenging and that we tend to have in-group bias and prefer people who share characteristics that we have. um, And that that is a problem in the workplace that I, I think is being reckoned with in real time, But that likability becomes this like, um, I use the example of during the 2016 election. I don't know if you had this experience out on the trail at all. But like people would talk about Hillary Clinton and they would sometimes, you know, build these cases against her that were based on policy or experience or whatever else. But they'd almost inevitably downshift to this final argument, which is I just don't like her. And the challenge was that with that was, well, that's guttural. And so you can't argue with it. You can argue with me about the email server. You can argue with me about Benghazi, but you can't argue with me about the fact that
0: I don't like her. I heard women make this argument.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you hear people make this argument about other people all the time, where they can't quite articulate what it is about the other person that's in conflict to them, but you just don't like them.
0: Elizabeth Warren has this issue.
1: Elizabeth Warren, I mean... Part of the challenge is that any woman who runs for president because we've never had a woman president is going to continue to run up against this challenge, which is it becomes the easiest way to discredit a candidate is to simply say that you don't like her. And what's complicated for women is, I mean, men contend with this, right? Ted Cruz was was seen as unlikable. There were headlines about how unlikable Ted Cruz was. Donald Trump had a high um, or a low favorability rating. People will vote for. A man even if they don't like him where for for a woman candidate they have to be seen as both competent and likable and so they have a double hurdle they have to clear
0: right so so there it seems to me like there are several levels of fix here one is structural societal i don't know how much we can do about that uh i can tell
1: you part of part of what we can do about it which is it's so funny. So, like, I'm talking about structural, organizational, and no, no matter, like, whenever I give this this talk to a group of women, women sort of always raise their hand. and like, okay, but what can I do? Which sort of brings us circularly back to the same yes, thing. Yes. So, so one of my favorite pieces of advice from the book came from this executive coach. By the Kettering. way, that's what
0: I just did to you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it's fair because— you, you, I do think that there's a certain empowerment that comes from knowing what we as individuals can do, how we are contributing to the problem and how we contribute to the solution. So if you're a woman and you receive that type of feedback, I mean, honestly, if you're anybody and you receive this type of subjective stylistic feedback that you're too hot, too cold, whatever it may be, that you ask, this came from a management consultant named Katerina Costula, you ask, compared to who? Right, like tell me some, show me someone else in the office who is likewise too assertive. And sometimes what that does is it forces the person who's giving you that review to consider whether or not they would give you and me the same piece of feedback. The follow-up to that that Katerina offers, which I think is very good, is that you ask the person who's reviewing you to draw a line from the style that they're identifying to your actual work product and results. So it's one thing to say. I don't know. You're really indecisive. Okay, well, I don't know what to do with that. Or it's a different thing to say, Dan, I know you pride yourself on being very deliberative and you took a lot of time in making a series of decisions. But what happened is that that resulted in the deck being a week and a half late to the client and we almost lost the account because of that. Tying your style, your behavior to the outcome. Okay, there may be something to learn in there, right? Sometimes there is value to amending or being more self-aware of one's style. The problem is when you're just being told it in a vacuum and being asked to fix it without any Sense of how it is actually impacting the work product. The other thing, and you know, Catalyst, which is this organization that focuses on women in the workplace and making workplaces better for women, has all of this great language about flipping the script. So even like what I just did, there's a difference between being indecisive and being deliberative, there's a difference between being passionate and being emotional. And when you use some of those words, you make a value judgment on the way that someone is rather than, um, both in the framing of it and in whether or not it re- leads to different outcomes right so, so so if i am emotional but you are passionate well then i'd rather work with the person who's passionate than the person who's emotional
0: and emotional tends to get tagged onto women yes. where passionate gets tagged, tagged onto, onto men. men yeah. so this sounds like advice because i was going to ask you about this later but it sounds like we've we've are we're already here mm-hmm. i i started by asking sort of where are you now and um we'll get to that but since emotional,
1: we're emotional very emotional <laughs>
0: I think we all are, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, um, or whether we hide it or not, uh, whether we're in touch with it or not. Anyway, that's a different soapbox. I was going to ask ultimately, but since we're here now, you know, what are the practices men can do?
1: Thank you for that question, because I think that is the question that we all have to be asking ourselves. Um, so a few things. When you give feedback, tie it to outcomes, focus on results. Um, don't hyper-focus on the way that a woman leads her team, right? Focus. So there's a difference between saying, um, you're not advocate, uh, you're, you're not being forceful enough in the way that you're pursuing that partnership, right? Like that's in some ways very stylistic. It's about saying like, I needed you, whatever, to make 10 calls. And I don't, f- I wanted to see a meeting on the books by the end of the month and the meeting's not there. Right. There's a difference in terms of how you give that feedback and the extent to which it is tied to an outcome.
0: I totally see that. And I think it makes really good sense. What if, though, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a woman who works for you? I mean, this would be tricky with a man, too, but um, there's a woman who works for you and you see her being unkind. Or no,
1: kind, unkind. Everyone should be kind, okay? Right? Like that's a universal stand Like I, and I agree with that. And I, I do see there's also value in the workplace to being a likable person, to being sort of congenial and someone that someone wants to be around. It's just as long as the standards are applied applicably, right, or evenly, right? So it's like if if that behavior is unkind from a woman and it would be unkind from a man, you would deal with it with her the same way you deal with it with mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. right? That those things. Some of that I actually think we need to grapple with in terms of coming to a, a standard of what we expect. What I heard much more from women was that there'd be a guy in their office who is allowed to be brash and you know verbally use language that we sort of would all agree is not appropriate, and he would be lauded as a really strong leader. And that if a woman were to ever use some of that language or to operate in the same way, she'd be seen as a tyrant. Um, now, I think there's sort of a secondary conversation of like, should he be able to act that way? Is that OK? I don't think so. Um, but the idea is that there's that standard should be even.
0: Are there other things that men should uh Have in mind as we interact with women as peers or mentees or bosses or Uh, or direct reports?
1: I think language is really important. Again, being careful how you talk about people. Not careful, being mindful about how you talk about other people, understanding that can have consequences. Here's the thing I learned that I would have never realized that I was contributing to, which is when you call a woman helpful, it relegates her to a helper position, so, like, I think of helpful as a, as a compliment, right? Um, but if I say Amy's helpful, then you're like, okay, well, I don't know what Amy did. Maybe she like brought you coffee while you were toiling, you know, in the middle of the night to say Amy provided all of the numbers for our end of the year report to make it really concrete. Mm gives you a sense of the way in which Amy has contributed to the project differently than just calling her helpful, which sort of leaves it up to the imagination what it is that she was doing. There's also, you know, being really specific. There's something called the innuendo effect, which I think was is fascinating, which is if I say, if you call me and you're looking um, to do a, a background check on someone or to I'm listed as someone's reference, and I say to you, Jill is so sweet, everybody loves her. And that's sort of the extent of the feedback I give you about Jill. There is a tendency to say, well... Hmm, Alicia said Jill was really sweet, so I guess she's not really assertive and strong in all the things that I need in this candidate. Conversely, if I had told you she was really strong, really comfortable with confrontation, and that's all I said, you might make a value judgment that the things that I didn't say said something about her. So giving sort of very balanced feedback, being very mindful in the way that we talk about other people is extraordinarily important. There are structural things like the way that we design feedback and evaluations and all of this stuff that the bottom line is it requires buy-in from the top. Like there are a lot of organizations that now have all of these programs that are meant to address unconscious bias. It only works if there is actually sincerely a buy-in from management that these things are important and actually create better business outcomes.
0: I mean, the evidence is pretty clear that they create better business outcomes Right when you have psychological safety on a team uh, when you have diversity on a team, actually, I've seen numbers that show that actually women leaders <laughs> should have better outcomes. But setting that aside, wh- whoever's the leadership, if you've got psychological safety—in other words, people feel safe to speak up—and you've got a diverse team with a different experiences being brought to bear on a problem, uh, the numbers I've seen indicate that the number that that the success rate is higher.
1: Right, and when so Google did some of. The research on psychological yes. safety, or they they were researching their team and found that the best performing teams had psychological safety. Sometimes it's as simple as when you lead a meeting, making sure that you ask everyone for their opinion, actively soliciting mm-hmm. opinions from people, so that people feel heard, they feel seen. I mean, that that's not really a, a a heavy undertaking, right? Like you call a meeting, ask everybody for their opinion. That that I think is. Um, is an easy thing to do to make people feel like they belong.
0: If people want a quick read on on Google's work around psychological safety, there's a New York Times Magazine article by Charles Duhigg. I think it's actually an excerpt from his book, a book he wrote. You can Google it, or we'll put a link in the show notes. You
1: can can Google it, yes. Yeah,
0: exactly. It all comes (laughs) full circle. Much more of my conversation with Alicia Menendez right after this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans the weather is getting warmer time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees Slash happier. So, okay, I tried to start this before we didn't get there. Yeah, Let's totally. go back to where you are. Do you still care about what people think of you and how do you manage that in your mind and in your actions in the world?
1: You know, I'm totally fixed. It's amazing. No, it um, is. <laughs> Well, first of all, let's talk about how putting a book out into the world is its own mind exploding thing to do because mm-hmm. you've spent so much time in the solitary act of writing and thinking. And all of a sudden, it's just time to share it with the class. Mm-hmm. And there will be people who like it. There will be people who love it. And there will be people with whom it does not resonate at all. Um, so the worst
0: thing is just to be completely ignored, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. What a strange process. Yeah. Um, and then to be a person who who's written about likability, there's sort of a as people are reading the book, uh, well, have I? Do they like me? Do they like this book?
0: So it's um, I worry about that a lot when I'm writing it. i um, yeah, I have course. a different chromosomal structure than you.
1: Yeah, but. I mean, you want people to get through it, right? And like, there is sort of a stickiness to likability. If you like someone, you like their tone. You're just more likely to stick with them than if in page three you're like, I'm I'm not into this voice and I'm mm-hmm. bored. Um what I have found helpful, and I address this in the book, is to shift towards other things. So I am an overthinker. I am what the late Yale professor Susan Nolan Hoxima called a ruminator. I love to sort of take an idea and like swirl it around in my mind like a fine wine and obsess over it. And I'm pretty certain that if I can just turn something over enough, that it will come up with an answer. And that can be something like walking out of this podcast and being like, did Dan have a good time during the recording of this? And then I will like think, okay, great. So that's one thing I could just ask, but like it will, I will go through sort of different moments of them and evaluate it. And the truth is, I will come up with my interpretation of of those things at the end of it I won't come up with a cold hard fact so understanding that has been very helpful to me sort of the difference between a known fact and an interpretation the other thing that is helpful and that I heard from
0: that sounds like CBT (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I mean, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. It, yes, it, not CBD. Yes, uh, well, I
1: laughed because I thought you said CBD, but yes,
0: uh, CBT. CBT, like you're, you're basically. I don't. I've never done CBT, but I think it's about taking a look at your thought processes and just interrogating them and a little actively bit. Actively disrupting. Yes.
1: Um. Big picture, what I found helpful from women who have. You know, become known leaders is that they tend to have other things that they are more focused on. So, one of the things that I heard a lot about was um, self awareness, being aware of the way that you are and the way that may impact others, clarity, being really clear in your vision and intent. Um, and what I think that does is. Instead of walking away and saying, did Dan like me or did that listener like me, the question becomes, was I really clear in communicating what I wanted to communicate? And if not, how can I be more clear the next time around? Where I think that comes into play in an office is that very often, I've under-communicated in the past, and now I've learned to over-communicate such that we're all clear on expectations, we're clear on why something's important, we're clear on why something needs to be done on the timeline that it's on, to avoid that thing that happens at the end of a project We're like, I needed this five days ago. It's like, well... Did, were you clear along the way about that? And if you were clear, then there you do have a right to be frustrated and to hold people to account for that. It, it's harder to do that when you weren't at every step of the way being super clear. And sometimes I think when you're a person who has big ideas, visions, things you want to accomplish, I for one can get so caught up in those ideas and those visions that sometimes I forget I have to bring everyone else along with me. On that journey. And so I think that is a helpful thing to learn as a manager. I interviewed Mindy Grossman who had done the turnaround at home shopping networks, now the CEO at Weight Watchers. And she talked about one transition she made where she hired an executive coach. They did a three sixty evaluation, one of those things where you get evaluated both by the people who manage you and the people you manage. I had one of those
0: about a year ago. I've talked about it a lot on the show. Was Mm -hmm. not fun.
1: No I compare it to a colonoscopy like it's like so do I yeah actually really yes it's I also like,
0: have called it an autopsy on somebody who's still alive
1: It's everything people say about you behind your back said to your face yes. and sort of I imagine that you did the same thing that she admitted to doing which is you play that game of like I think I know who said this oh yeah um but that the big takeaway for her was that she would hold these meetings where she would ask people for their input, But because she was in charge, she would see the problem immediately offer what she thought the solution was. And that just didn't offer the time or space for anybody else to counter propose. And so being aware of the way that she operates, she started having people get materials ready in advance, present them in advance so that she was totally studied up before the meeting so there was more breathing room in the meeting for conversation and discussion. And that type of self-awareness, I think, is something we all benefit from thinking about, from working toward. Um, And I think clarity too. I mean, sometimes it's about getting clear with ourselves about why we're doing what we're doing. And sometimes it's about getting clear with others. I'm talking about the workplace. I think a lot of this is applicable to our real lives. I've seen this play out in friendships. I see it play out with my husband where it's like, it's very clear to me why the dishwasher needs to be unloaded. But sometimes I'm not doing a good enough job of explaining like, we're coming home late tonight. We're going to start making dinner. If the dishwasher is full, then we're not going to be able to move into cooking right away. And it's going to be 30 minutes later. And the kids are going to be to bed late. And like I'm already 20 steps ahead and totally pissed about the dishwasher when I've never communicated the backup that will result. Mm. Mm. So it's like just taking that minute to be like, let me unpack this.
0: So clarity I get. Um, Let's just go back to unpacking or interrogating the thoughts that go through your mind because you're going to be moving through the world as a a newly published author Mm -hmm. soon. And you're continuing to be on television as a journalist. Mm -hmm. So the issue of getting feedback is not going to go away. How do you imagine that's going to go for you?
1: Really well. Um, (laughs) One thing I think is actually just a very mechanical thing, which is considering for oneself, considering for myself, what I get out of some of these social platforms. Mm. Um, So like I just, I've taken some of them off my phone. Me too. Um, I, I also don't check mentions all the time, which is challenging because that means you can't be in dialogue and you can't be in conversation with people constantly. But I I am not built to have that constant feedback loop. I mean, I think in terms of getting feedback from coworkers, from managers, that is just a process of maturation where now I understand that I'm not supposed to fully take every piece of feedback that I'm given, that I'm allowed to sift through them and think about what I actually believe helps and makes me better. And that I can also allow things to be opinions. And then also just having things that I come back to and I care about. I mean, kids are incredibly grounding, right? Like they require a time and an energy and a presence um, that helps break up the pattern of rumination, right? Like when you're like, my kid will say, mommy, get off the phone. (laughs) There's really just no better way to, to break that, that loop than to have someone say like, I need you to be here, right here, right now with me. And a lot of that other stuff is noise.
0: We we talked before about the sort of diabolical nature, the Mm -hmm. multi-level nature of the likability trap or traps How confident are you that going forward are your children male or female? I have two girls. Two girls. How confident are you that your girls will inhabit a world where the workplace isn't so fraught?
1: I think about this all the time. I think about it because there's a lot about how we raise girls and socialize girls. And I think of the fact that I'm like, oh, I could do everything quote unquote right and then still release her into a world where there are expectations about how a girl is supposed to behave. And I'm going to have to contend with that as a parent. So What I do know is that unless we start thinking of these things as things that are changed at a structural level and stop acting as though individuals by changing their own behavior performance relationship to likability can change things— that's not enough. Isn't it both? It's both. Yes, It's both. Individuals push organizations to do the things that they do. Individuals yep. make up organizations. But this sort of like, well, if I'm just warmer or I'm just stronger, yes, that that may allow you to temporarily navigate a situation but is not actually changing the rules of the
0: game. Yeah, I think I'll offer my best shot at optimism here, which is I think <laughs> that that societies do change right? And sometimes it's always messy. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back or whatever, it lurches forward, and then there's a regression. But I think the only way it's going to change is people like you coming forward and forcing a dialogue. And so I think your daughters may end up thanking you for this. Much more of my conversation with Alicia Menendez right after this.
2: We're driven by the search for better.
0: Definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the the first 15, 20 percent of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free. For 30 days, visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash
1: 10%. Can I ask you one more question? Do you have advice? I mean, given that you have gone through this process and have been on the other end of this feedback loop specifically as it you know for us it's a book but I think plenty of people produce things art projects put them out into the world and then they're available for consumption and critique how do you not get totally tripped up in that
0: well I I can give you my advice but now I'm sort of mindful of the fact that I'm giving it from a male perspective where I I probably my wiring is different and the culture treats me Differently. Okay. So grains of salt. Uh, so I wrote my first book and I admitted all this stuff that I was super ashamed of. And I th- I was really worried that, you know, it was going to kill my career. And my mom uh, kind of begged me not to publish it a couple weeks before mm. it came out. She sent me an email. It was already printed. And it was – and then um, my boss at the time, two of my bosses at the time, uh, Ben Sherwood – who you remember, who was the president of ABC News and Diane Sawyer, who's still here as an um, uh, anchor and correspondent. I went to speak to both of them and they said, look, you know, we love your mom, but she's wrong in this case and it's going to be fine. We have your back. And what I found was, oddly, people don't really care that much about the, you know, that was titillating my story, but really what they wanted to know is what do you have for me? And I felt pretty good that I, that I, you know, I would thoroughly ripped off 2,600 years of the Buddhist tradition and I had something <laughs> uh, to, to offer. And uh, so, I, it, oddly enough, admitting this stuff in the right way, in other words, I spent a lot of five years writing the book and uh, thinking about how to write about it. And I ran it by tons of people to get feedback before I published it. And uh, r- admitting this stuff in the right way in some ways ended up in sort of applause. And uh, that, in a has made me much more comfortable just being myself to the best of my ability in ways that I wasn't before. So it's possible that you writing this book is going to be really liberating because you're admitting something that's been a huge personal, private bugaboo for you, which is that you spend a lot of time worrying about what other people think. Mm -hmm. uh, And that runs counter to the image you've been presenting in some ways. And I think that it's going to be warmly received and that you're going to feel like, Empowered to be even more vulnerable, not in a uh, not an oversharing way, because bleeding all over the place or just vomiting up all of anything at any time. Even Brene Brown has been on the show, who's the you know the czar czarina of of vulnerability in our culture. Says you know you want to just be that's not oversharing is not proper <laughs> vulnerability. But this, what you've done in this book, is proper vulnerability. It's just telling people what you've been struggling with, how you've been dealing with it, and how they can deal with it too. That strikes me as very, very constructive. So you're going to get some negative feedback along the way, and I think that will just be moments to practice what you're preaching. So, what
1: did you do when you got? Did you get? Did you get any negative
0: feedback? Yes, yes, for sure. Um, not that much, but um, I remember even before the book came out, some maybe the Daily Mail reviewed it and called it. Confessions of a Balding Egomaniac. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it hurts. It hurts. But it's also pretty funny. I don't know how I would have dealt with if the book had been roundly criticized. I think it would have been really hard. But I'll tell you one, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about because this is what I'm writing about in my next book, which is self-love or self-compassion is a really overused term and misunderstood but there's a way through meditation practice and also just through cognitive stuff, having good friends, therapy, thinking about things in a, in a, in a different light, where you can become much more friendly toward your ugliness and the stuff that you're ashamed of. Mm. And that can really transform the way you treat yourself, with it, which is inexorably linked to the way you behave in the world. Mm. And that, to me, seems like a key unlock. And yes. And so I would recommend – you know, in moments where you're getting tough criticism, see why is this hurting you so much and is there something in there? Forget the, the, the superficial stuff, but if somebody says something substantive that's, uh, you know, in a 360 for me right. uh, where I got substantive feedback and it really made me feel so much shame about all this stuff, all these old patterns I was acting out. if the key move in that process is to view it with some warmth and charitable what did Lincoln say in the, his famous inaugu- second inaugural you know charity toward all um that that allows you to kind of just exhale and be like all right well yeah I've got I'm a human being so I've got a lot of ugliness and I got good stuff too and can I not constantly feed the ugliness through denial or uh, whatever and that allows it to quiet down so that the good stuff can emerge Does that make if any you, sense
1: it makes a a ton of sense I it is also really scary, right, to think about interrogating the ugliness yes, and 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 even scarier to think about embracing it because it, it would seem that that is a seeding of control, right? If you think of these as control things where it's like, yes, I have some ugly things, but we just ignore them or we just put them away as opposed to really saying, like, come
0: out and play. Yes, but there are profound upsides to the hardest thing you'll ever do. And do you want to be happy? Okay, so everybody does, and every animal does too. All Anything alive wants to be happy in however way they are defining it. And I don't think you can truly have peace of mind if you've got all of these uh, neuroses operating out of your visibility and you're walking around with ambient shame and uh, all of this stuff that is making you behave, misbehave, and screw up your relationships, and so... The only move that makes any sense is actually to turn toward it and see it. The great meditation teacher, Spring Washam, I sent her my 360, and her response was, well, insight sets you free, but first it pisses you off. And that seems like a pretty good description of this process, much pithier too.
1: If you title your book Ambient Shame, I will buy 10 (laughs) copies. (laughs) At least do a, cha- a chapter
0: title <laughs> okay no, I'm thinking about that. Um, well because one of the things I think about even right when they're talking about gender is is how to write about these issues of related to kindness in a way that will be unisex because men are you know my issues of being kind are very different than women's issues you know I'm now speaking in generalities but women are as you said, socialized differently. So it's a very tricky thing because the areas in which I fall short, I see a gender root to some of them. And so how to write about kindness in a way that will appeal to both or to all genders, that's really a big writing challenge for me.
1: I look forward to reading it. Okay.
0: Um, before we go, I want to ask you about um, so, one lesson. No, I want to say one more thing. You've got okay. a great head
1: of hair. So oh, thank the you. appreciate that. that- was just being rude,
0: uh, well, because in the book i I perseverate a lot about losing my hair, so that's <laughs> why they wrote it, so it wasn't their fault um, one last thing because you you have all these pithy phrases in the book that and there's one i just we got we hit most of them there's just one I want to get to before we go, which is I want to see if you're any closer to this or have any thoughts about this, which is the cardi b effect
1: yes, oh, thank you so much for bringing it up because i I feel like we've had this our conversation in the context of um of gender, and really that's like one wash where on top of that you add race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. I mean, there are just so many ways that people are contending with this question of likability. And so, the Cardi B effect is a phrase from um, an NPR, a woman wrote a piece for NPR, Sydney Madden, and she talks about how it, it it's the velocity of Cardi B's ascent comes from this branding rooted in specific authenticity. I'm paraphrasing. Just in case somebody
0: doesn't know who Cardi B is, she's a famous rapper.
1: Yes, um, and she came up in some ways as this reality Insta star who was completely unfiltered, and that you know that she has you know this little accent and flourishes to the way that she speaks and uses her hands and dresses, and that the that the authenticity is what I was interested in. Right, this this perceived authenticity because I think it's hard to ever really know. If someone's being authentic,
0: and right? she—and by the way, she seems not to care right. what other people think. Right,
1: and though also there have been moments where I've watched her like take down her Instagram account because the feedback loop was getting too much for mm-hmm. her too. Mm-hmm. So I think even people who purport not to care have their limits Mm. to not caring. Um, Someone made the distinction to me, even though she's not driven by likability, it doesn't hurt any less when people don't like her, Uh which I think is important. Anyhow, back to Cardi B. It's just, you know, women of color is really what I had on my mind with the Cardi B effect, which is like, can you be so authentically yourself as a woman of color, as a person of color in a workplace? Be lauded for that and and get to do you. I'm not sure you do, right? Most of the women of color that I interviewed felt that not only were they in some way adjusting their performance based on what was expected of them as women, but also, um, you know, were contending with a set of other challenges by virtue of being Black or being Latina and in many cases being the only person in their office who who was black or Latina or one of a few um, and having like a real sense people had that, that there was a way other people expected them to show up and to be um, and how quickly people were to stereotype them. Um, And that can be something sort of, you know, innocuous like uh, this woman who um, had gone to an office event where it was a potluck and she's, she was Mexican-American, and everyone kept being like, that seven-bean dip was awesome. And she was like, I brought the sugar cookies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not sure why you've assumed this to really sort of more <clears throat> nefarious things like having conversations where there are racialized, racially charged um, language use, and calling it out and then becoming the problem in the meeting because you called it out. Um, and so... In as much as this has to do with gender, I think it also really has to do with being the other in the office in any way that you can be the other and people having an expectation of the way that you're supposed to show up. And there can be a flip to that, too. I mean, I'm Latina. I very much identify as being Latina. I have this name where, you know, Alicia Menendez were when I show up at like the doctor's office. People are like, are you sure? Because I'm just not what they were expecting in some way because I am so... White presenting. Um, and I've received feedback that I should play it up. I mean, you can't see I'm using air quotes, but play it up. From from bosses? From, I think, from well-intentioned mentors. Mm. Um, just this sense that it would be beneficial to me if people could read more easily that I was Latina, which is obviously wrapped up in stereotypes and bias and— um, but that that there was a sense of what a Latina should look like, sound like, dress like, and if I could do just a little bit more of that, then that would be beneficial. And of course, there are probably even more Latinas who get it the other way, where it's like your accent's a problem, the hoops are a problem. Like there's sort of always a sense of how we're supposed to be.
0: Well, are you okay in time? Yeah. We'll ask we'll yeah. last question here. Yeah. Because I, I'm thinking back to my couple of minutes ago soliloquy about the difference in how... I show up in the world as a white guy, uh, and and my deficiencies around kindness and and the fact that that might not resonate with um, some women, but given how uh, they've been brought up, and it reminded me of another thing you talked about in the book, which is Coach K. What how do we pronounce his name? The Duke basketball. Yes, coach. when
1: I was uh, doing the audio book. They were, they were like, okay, wow, you really don't know how to say this. <laughs> and we're going to, so let's call him coach K for now. But yeah, he, I mean, he, um, has how many national championships has he won? Do you, do you know?
0: No, okay, okay. I don't fall. A forward. ton, yeah. a ton.
1: I, yeah, I played middle school basketball. Um, and, and there was all of this sort of, all of these pieces that have been written about him where it's like, you know, he's just so, he coaches like a girl and they mean it as, as a complimentary thing, which is to say that he is relational and and um, communicative with his players, and there is a value then in how they play on the court as a result of that.
0: Right, and what I found interesting about that is, in terms of management style, and that doesn't mean you're a manager, just in how you are in a professional environment, or in any environment, actually. For men, I don't think many men think there are actually really important female-coded traits that we can... Develop, um, incorporate into our style that would be very advantageous. And
1: I also think, I mean, you alluded to this over over the course of this conversation, but um, we're all emotional, right? And I think one of the differences women are conditioned to allow to be grapple with their emotions, where men um, are not conditioned. It's a way in which I think we underserve boys and men, um, and that manifests in our personal lives, but also manifests at the office, um, and, and vulnerability that, you know, to be a vulnerable person is often seen as, um, as a potential demerit, as opposed to be seen as a point of connectivity that can actually make you a better manager, a better leader. And I think opening those things up for everyone gives all of us just more room to run, more ways to be. I mean, we're as prescriptive with women as we are with men. Um, it's just that the ways in which those prescriptions are limited happen to be different.
0: Before we go, remind us of the name of the book and where can we find you on social media? Um, and any if we want to binge everything Alicia Menendez, where can we do that?
1: Yeah, um, I'm old enough to have a URL with my name, aliciamenendez.com. Nice. Okay. Um but yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Alicia Menendez, on Instagram, at Alicia Menendez XO. Um, and um, I'm on Facebook because I need to know what my mom is up to. <laughs> um, but um, but the book is called The Likeability Trap. And I I it's a thing that I would love to be in conversation around. So if you do pick it up and you do read it, um, let me know which questions I can answer for you.
0: Great job. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Alicia. Glad we had a chance to rerun that. Thanks as well to the people who work incredibly hard to make this show. Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wertel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. And we get our audio engineering from our good friends over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. This is a really good one. It's about time management for mortals with the journalist and author Oliver Berkman.